Whenever there's a debate about the worst F1 team of all time, the shambolic Italian Andrea Moda team is thrown into the conversation. This was a team hopelessly out of its depth just as F1's pre-qualifying era of plucky minnows was running out of steam. By 1992, F1 was already progressing rapidly towards a huge step forward in professionalism, and the teams that we look back now and consider charming were already in the process of being left behind. But Andrea Moda has an achievement to its name that suggests it couldn't possibly be the worst team of all time, as unlike some others in that conversation, remarkably one of the Andrea Moda cars qualified for a race. The more you hear of this story, the more amazed you'll be that that ever happened. I'm Glenn Freeman and regular listeners to Bring Back V10s will not be shocked to hear that joining me for this look back at one of F1's most infamous teams is Backmarker's aficionado Ed Straw. Ed, you've been desperate for us to do an episode about Andrea Moda. So what is it about this story that first springs to mind for you now you've been granted your wish? Well, for a specific moment, it is something I'm sure we're going to get onto later, which is Roberto Moreno, not only pre-qualifying, but also qualifying for the Monaco Grand Prix. Just a genuinely great achievement. But in general terms, I think as you alluded to in your introduction, Andrea Moda, for me, it's the gold standard of misguided Minnow F1 teams, which, as you know, is my absolutely favourite type of team. So, yeah, it just stands in history as as a wonderful monument to failure and over-optimism, which is why it's brilliant to spend an hour or so with us talking about it. Only you could come up with the phrase gold standard and attach it to Andrea Moda. Uh, But anyway, Ed could talk for a full episode about this on his own, I'm sure, but he will have some support shortly from one of the men unfortunate enough to have to drive for Andrea Moda. Before we go any further, though, remember to get your questions in for our season finale, where you can ask us anything about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. Submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, email BringBackV10s at the-race.com, or leave us a question with a five-star podcast review if you're enjoying the show and you think we've earned it. So what was Andrea Moda and why did it become an F1 team? The name belonged to an Italian footwear manufacturer run by Andrea Sassetti, who'd started the company in the mid-80s after winning the equivalent of €1,500 in a game of poker. During and after his time in F1, Sassetti was always a bit of a man of mystery, but in the late 2000s, Italian magazine Autosprint got hold of him for a very rare interview, and that interview was translated into English by somebody on the GPRejects.com forums, which we'll cite several times in this episode. In late 1991, the struggling Coloni team was well on course for a full house of failures to pre-qualify, much to the delight of Ed, and it was mentioned to Sassetti that the team was looking for a partner. In the Auto Sprint interview, Sassetti said, I proposed myself. I entered the deal, but certain accounts were not balanced, so with a little ingenuity and unawareness, I decided to buy everything. Until then, I had seen F1 just on television. So Ed, if you wanted to start an F1 team in this era, was there anything sensible about buying Coloni as your first step? Well, if you're starting a Grand Prix team, picking up the assets of an existing team or an existing operation, very logical way to go. But ultimately, (laughs) 
you can't really build on the know-how and the expertise and the infrastructure of an existing team if it doesn't have a lot of that. Colony was the minnow of minnows, rock bottom in the 1991 Constructors' Championship, having never made the grid. And In fact, that was 35 consecutive failures to qualify they had all the way back to, towards the end of 1989. So this was a team on, on life support, for want of a better phrase, and given the various financial issues that had to be untangled to make it work, the myriad problems that arose that we'll we'll get onto, I'd argue it was an awful lot of hassle for requiring a little bit of equipment. So massively counterproductive in the end. It was a paired back, badly limping team, very little there to, to build on. So Sassetti was just acquiring a whole load of problems, which is probably symptomatic of the naivety of quite a few of those who got involved in F1 in this period. Reports about the team over the winter were mixed, ranging from referring to it as formerly Colony to saying Andrea Moda was built from the remains of Colony's F1 team. The plan was for the team to start the season with a modified version of Colony's disastrous 1991 car, featuring a Judd V10 engine, a new transverse gearbox, new rear suspension and a revised cooling system. Alex Caffian and Rico Battaglia were signed to drive, and the team planned to introduce its definitive car, designed by Simtech, at the Spanish Grand Prix in May. In its 1992 season preview, Autosport magazine said, Andrea Sassetti has injected finance into the team and expanded it to two cars. In addition, he has hired several useful engineers to put the team on a more even technical keel. The success of the team will depend largely on the financial commitment of Sassetti and his ability to find extra support to lift the team onto a path towards proper financial structuring and investment. We will have to see how serious he is but the indication so far is that he's going about it in the right sort of way. So Ed, compared to where this story is heading, at this stage, did it actually look like Sassetti was at least trying to make a go of this properly? Yeah, from a distance, it certainly had the appearance of being credible. But of course, this was in an era when it was much more difficult to find out information about companies and individuals. You couldn't just go online. So for the uninitiated, it almost felt like a uh, a minor Italian fashion house was piling money into do it right, sort of a, a kind of uh, Gucci F1, which sounds brilliant, doesn't it? But uh, of course it wasn't. But like you say, expanding to two cars, having Alex Caffey and Enrico Battaglia, both very handy drivers. Caffey had a decent amount of experience in F1. Battaglia won the Monaco and Macau F3 races, so so proper drivers. It all looks on paper quite positive, especially with investment and some credible people with real Formula One experience coming in. So you look at that and think, well, they could make a a, a credible step. So yeah, I think it's when you look a little bit more closely at the detail that we've just started to to touch upon that it it begins to to break down. But that's the way with a lot of these teams, isn't it? All the ones that prove to be a disaster, those that struggle massively and never get anywhere, or those that never exist. There's always big cracks that are obvious if you know where to look. And unfortunately, it didn't take long for one of those cracks to appear and Andrea Moda to get in trouble for the first time. The team was excluded from the first race of the year in South Africa for not submitting the £100,000 guarantee necessary for a new team entering F1. Sassetti argued that Andrea Moda wasn't a new team. It was just Coloni rebranded as he had bought the team's equipment and settled its bills. But Enzo Coloni had retained his shares in Coloni itself so Sassetti had effectively just bought Colony's assets and settled their debts. And his case wasn't helped by the fact that he'd moved the team from Colony's base to new premises. Sassetti wasn't happy about this, feeling the authorities were working against his little team. 
He said in South Africa, I knew it would be a risk to go into F1. Up to this moment, it has cost me $4 million. That's enough. I'm a brave man if I know the rules, but these people bend the rules all the time. I'm not used to that. I'm not a politician. Ed, any sympathy for the team with this first episode of, of Strife? Not really, because there's some very big red flags here. It's clear that Sassetti wasn't working with the relevant authorities to make it work, which is the FIA and Bernie Eccleston. If you've got those two on side, you're okay. And it does have all the, the signs of being just an attempt to brazen it out, you know, turn up at Kyle Army and just hope that everything was allowed to slide rather than getting it sorted out, having a dialogue before. And of course, the car did very, very briefly get on track, didn't it, in the, the acclimatisation session. We don't have these anymore, but they often had those for new circuits and Kyle Army was back on the calendar and it was a revised track so that they did run uh, the day before the event proper so it was actually the stewards who intervened and realized that these cars were not quite what they needed to be for uh, uh, for, a, for a new team so Sassetti talks about the rules being bent but actually he wanted the rules bent for him and they might have been had he played the game so it smacks of somebody who doesn't quite understand how it works and just wants to kind of pile in and say nope this is fine you're going to let me do it or, or you're wrong and, and I think that shows the fundamental problem at the end of this. If, you, if you've if you got Bernie Eccleston and the FIA on side, you've got a chance because things will be allowed to let slide, but not in this sort of situation. It's a, a confrontational approach to doing this, which was never going to work. And it didn't work. Andrea Moda had to enter the championship as a new team. And that also meant it couldn't run the old Colony cars it had bought because they'd officially belonged to another constructor. That meant the plan to bring the Simtech designed cars to the Spanish Grand Prix had to be accelerated. Sassetti said in his Auto Sprint interview, I didn't surrender. I went to Simtech myself, paying in full for two complete chassis. It's necessary to take years to prepare for an F1 entry. We had to do everything in a few months, and then I discovered I had three weeks. The Simtech cars were a design originally prepared for a potential BMW F1 project. Andrea Moda's staff worked flat out at the Simtech factory to get the cars built up. And Perry McCarthy tells a story in his book about mechanics from other teams arriving at 6pm every night to help out for £150 per shift. The cars were shipped to Mexico on the Monday before the second race of the season, but they were delayed in transit and didn't arrive at the circuit until Friday morning, which was already too late for them to take part in the weekend. The team stayed on to build the cars in the garage, and there was some confusion around if they'd be liable for the six-figure fine for missing the event. But after a meeting of the Formula One Constructors Association, or FOCA, it was decided that there was enough confusion around what could be considered attending a race for the team to escape punishment. Now, Ed, considering the sudden short time frame the team had to get those Simtech cars ready, was it an achievement of sorts even to turn up late in Mexico and carry on working on the cars in the garages. Yeah, it shows a level of commitment and determination. And I think given what I said before about them not really working with the FIA and F1, showing that their eagerness and seriousness stretched to them going, even though they knew it was going to be very difficult to do anything, is probably a very positive thing and perhaps an attempt to regain some some ground. And it, it was a good move to uh, pick up that SimTech design that, as you said, already existed. But then again, this whole situation was only necessary because of the, the previous errors. So it did also lay bare how far off the team was from being ready to go and be competitive. Because it's not just about getting the cars running, it's it's getting them working well when you're you're doing such a, a short lead time project as it was. So yeah, 
a positive move, but kind of one positive after five or six negatives, shall we say. Before the next race in Brazil, Caffey and Battaglia were fired by the team for expressing their displeasure at what was going on. So in came Roberto Moreno and Perry McCarthy. And let's look at how they each got their drive. Moreno recently talked about this on the official F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson. Um, There are a couple of things that really amused me in that interview. Firstly, where he said he had no idea the team used to be Coloni. He thought it was Simtech. But he said that that explained why he knew so many of the mechanics, given he'd previously driven for Coloni. And secondly, he seems to think that Sassetti's name was in fact Andrea Moda, which I thought was excellent. But Moreno was at home in Brazil without a drive when he got the call saying Andrea Moda were looking for drivers for the Brazilian Grand Prix. And he said if they paid him $15,000 cash on his arrival, he would drive for them. And if the money wasn't there, he would leave immediately. He stayed, so the money must have turned up. But let's quickly hear something that Moreno told the Beyond the Grid podcast about his experience on that first weekend in Brazil. I seen this kind pieces everywhere. And they were really trying hard. The mechanics did a, a fantastic job in putting those together. They push hard. And they don't care to sleep late. They don't care not to sleep. They will do anything for what they do. So I slept in the engine box while they were finishing the car to wait to make the seat. I think I made the seat around four o'clock in the morning again. And all they had to do is, I think FIA say they had to do at least three laps so they wouldn't get kicked out. So I had to find a way to do three laps in that car for $15,000. Sassetti described the new lineup as a substantial upgrade on Caffey and Battaglia. And he said Moreno was on his original shortlist because of his vast experience and a good reputation as a test driver. As Moreno mentioned, he completed exactly three laps and was 16 seconds off the pace in pre-qualifying. So the team's weekend was done by Friday morning. Now, Ed, Moreno spent most of 1991 racing for Benetton before he lost his drive to Michael Schumacher. This was, of course, a huge step down from that. But given Moreno's experience at this end of the pit lane with teams like Coloni, how good a signing was he for Andrea Moda? Yeah, superb signing. I was positive about that original lineup because Caffey and Battaglia were decent drivers, but Moreno did have everything. He had a significant experience. He'd been on the podium in F1, Ferrari test driver, plenty of minnow experience, not just Coloni, but Yerba and AGS. Plus, he'd driven for Jordan a couple of times the previous year after being dropped by Benetton. So he had an idea of what a very good startup team could achieve. So that, plus the fact he was very quick, makes him the perfect driver for a team like Andrea Moda. But just a shame that Andrea Moda wasn't the perfect team for him. But he knew how F1 worked. He was willing to plug away in unpromising situations. Popular, likeable character, which is quite handy to have around for a team that's going to have a, a long, hard slog. So he ticked all the boxes and actually he might be your number one choice of all drivers to have in that situation, given his unique experience. Moreno's weekend still went better than McCarthy's as Perry had his super license taken away just hours after it was issued on the Thursday of the Brazilian Grand Prix. At this point, I'm delighted to say that Perry is joining us for the rest of this episode to share his first-hand tales 
of what it was like being part of Andrea Moda in 1992. Perry, welcome along and thank you so much for joining us. When you get a request from people like us asking you to talk about Andrea Moda, does it send a shiver down your spine? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I see shadows of Andrea walking in the pit. You know, it's just, it's one of those things. It, it's funny. It kind of it, it brings out some emotions. I, I think one of the things that I've always been keen on in life is that I understand success and I understand failure, but I never want it to be mediocre. So I think my Formula One career definitely wasn't mediocre. We were complete failure. And that I understand. There was nothing mediocre about this story. Let's just give a quick background to how you ended up possessing your super license for, I think, seven hours. It was in your book called Flat Out, Flat Broke, which I'd recommend anybody picks up for an entertaining read. You said that you'd looked into the super license process and you were worried that your lack of a major F3 title or a full season in F3000 meant you might struggle to get a super license. And even Bernie Eccleston had told you he didn't rate your chances. But you had the RAC MSA on your side in Britain and they were lobbying hard for you with FISA, which back then was the sporting arm of the FIA. You were granted your license by race director Roland Brunscherider, which you signed in Brazil. But Roland didn't have the power to just give one out as your case was supposed to go through the F1 commission. Brunscherider said he'd granted the license to accelerate matters. While after all this shook out, a FISA spokesman said, the license has not been withdrawn, it was never issued, which I know is a quote you took some issue with. So take us back to what I think was the Interlagos pit lane and tell us what happened basically from the moment Brunscherider came up to you and told you not to leave the circuit until he'd come back to have a chat. I need to step back a second because Andrea Moda had come into Formula 1 in 1992 and had two, two drivers already. Uh, Enrico Patagia and, and uh, Cathy, Alex Cathy, yeah. Um, anyway, they went through two races of not getting on the track. Uh, both drivers actually complained, and because they'd complained about this, Sassetti fired them. So they now needed two new drivers. So they chose Roberto, but then there was a, like, who shall we have in the other one? And there were people working uh, for and around the team that said, you know, you really need Perry for this. Um, and so anyway, I was contacted and said, Formula One? Yeah, okay, I know there's going to be problems, but maybe, maybe I can do something with this little mob. And, and that was it. But so the team wanted me, and so that deal was done. Um, but then I realised, of course, I had to apply for a super licence, exactly as you say. So I called Bernie up, and Bernie was talking with me and said, you may have a problem and everything. So he said, but, you know, he said, but if you talk to FISA, uh, then I'll back you. I said, okay, great, thanks. So I called Fizer up and said, look, you know, Bernie's on my side, MSA, as you rightly mentioned, they were on my side. So MSA and FISA got together and FISA did issue the license, okay, um, because I know about this story uh, that they come out with afterward. So then, of course, it was given to me by Roland. And then, of course, as you say, about seven hours later, I'm in Brazil, which I'd had to borrow the money to get there for to drive this piece of junk. <laughs> Uh, I'm standing there and suddenly Roland's come up to me and said, um, uh, Perry, um, where are you going later? So I said, what do you mean? He said, where will you be about six o'clock? And I thought, there's a problem here. He can't be that desperate for a dinner date, you know? So, so I said, um, what's going on? So he said, uh, can I have your license? So I said, uh, no. He said, give me a license. I had it on me. And I was just thinking, oh, no, 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 no. He said, um, I've got to take it. So I was really upset. So I gave it back to him. 
And he said, this shouldn't have been issued. You haven't braced enough because I had a couple of years in F3, as you know, but quite rightly, even though it went very well for me in Formula 3000, I'd had three races one year, three races another year, and then was in the States, and that went really well, but that didn't count toward the super license. So now I'm standing there, I've got out there, and I'm, heart I'm not kidding you, I'm heartbroken, because to get to that point, I'd worked on oil rigs, I'd walked around industrial estates, I was in massive debt, whatever it took to get there, and you know, you, you're just standing there, realize it's over. But I'm not quite like that. Nothing's ever over. I'm going to, you know, there's no way I was going to give up. So I went to see Burning um, to say, look, this is what's happened. Well, actually, I was sitting outside his office for about an hour. And then finally he walked past. And he looked at me and I said, Bernie, I need to talk to you. So he said, yeah, I know. Come in. So we're sitting there. And all of a sudden, Bernie's then started saying, uh, this is why you can't have it. And I'm not kidding you. I was like that. The, the bottom bottom lip was going, you know, and I had to think, yeah, don't lose it, don't lose it. But I was so desperately upset, and I did start raising my voice with Bernie. I said, "This is just a joke, uh, you know." The people I've raced with, anybody I've raced with on that grid in Formula One, I'd beaten them in the past, you know. So I kind of deserve to be here. And all of a sudden, he started smiling, and he said, "They've told me you're a fighter. Okay, all right, this is what you do." So go and talk to Flavio you know, uh, over at Benetton, Flavio Briatore. So talk to Frank you know, over at Williams, talk to Ron over at McLaren, talk to Marco Piccinini, who was the lawyer uh, over at Ferrari, um, and Giancarlo, I think it was, over at Minardi, yeah. Uh, they, so there was a commission of 13 people. So those five teams were on it. So Bernie wanted me to go talk to them directly to get their vote on board. So he said, right, he said, in the meantime, or this is how Bernie talks, in the meantime, right, I'll vote for you. <laughs> Max will vote for you. Max Mosley was head, yeah. He said, and uh, he said, I need to speak to the circuit promoters because there was a couple of those that had a vote. I swear to you, as we're going out the door, I've got, right, I've got a chance. I've got a chance. And that's all I ever look for, a gap, something to pry open. So I've got, I've got a chance. <laughs> so we got to the door. All of a sudden the door's open. And then there's, by chance, I can't remember the bloke's name. I'll call him Guido. So Guido was waiting to come in <laughs> to see Bernie. He was one of the guys that had the vote. Yeah, because he was the Brazilian circuit promoter. So anyway, so all of a sudden, Bernie's going to, oh, opportune. Guido, this is Mr. McCarthy. So he said, I know, I know. So he said, um, Guido, Mr. McCarthy has a problem. He said, yes, I know. He said, so Guido, you know about this license problem. So you're on the commission. He said, um, Guido, he said, um, how would you vote for him? So all of a sudden, Guido's going, it's a test. It's a test. It's a procedural test. So, sir, uh, well, I would I would speak to the other members on my council and and, and speak to the uh, other members uh, of the uh, club that we are and and find out what the view of the... no Guido and he's <laughs> he said no 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 he said how would you vote for him Guido's obviously struck out first time he's now going ah so he's gonna uh, I would I would speak to uh, the other teams in Formula One and and the people in the pit lane to find out the reputation of Mr McCarthy to see if we felt we could he said look Guido let me make this easier for you I want you to vote for him he said no problem yeah. <laughs> inside you know my career is completely hanging like Fred but even inside I'm giggling thinking this poor bastard, you know, what he's going through. And like, but in the end, Bernie's just gone, I want you to vote for him. He's gone, no problem. Anyway, I went to see Ron. Um, Ron was on a spin about some piece of freight. But he's gone, yeah, no, of course, Mary. You know, same with Frank. Um, Flav, 
didn't even know I was. It looked at me as if I was some kind of space cadet. But obviously, I think Gordy Message and a few of the others inside Bennett and clued him up and they said, no, Perry should be in. I think Pat was there. Pat Simmons was there as well. So somebody was talking to Flav, getting that sorted. Uh, Gio Carlo was fine. And then somebody represented me over at Ferrari. So then I got back and then bang, license. That was it. So Max called up and said, you got it. So I've gone, thanks, Max. Terrific. So anyway, hope that wasn't too long of an answer, but it, it needed a bit more detail. Yep, that's why I want to hear it firsthand as well. Um, and to be fair, I don't think um, Flav knew who Johnny Herbert was when he was driving for him. So there's no shame in that. I know. I know. John and I were neighbours, you know, coming through Formula Ford, mm. Formula 3, Formula 3000 when he first got into F1. You know, and um, yeah, believe me, there was a, a bunch of things going on behind the scenes there. Yeah, I can't talk about them on Johnny's behalf, but but John Johnny's book is super. Yeah, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. That's a, that's a really good book and that really explains a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, clearly... Not as good as mine, you know. Um, you know, let's face facts. You know, that's mine is Johnny. Mine is a better book. You know it. I know it. In fact, my book's going really well. We sold another copy just last month. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> but the the drama didn't end there for your F one prospects because it was around this time that all of this was going on. You were waiting to hear back from Max that Batagia came back on the scene. And this time said he had a million dollars of sponsorship in tow. By this point, Andrea Sassetti is already realising he's bitten off more than he could chew with F1. So a million dollars looked pretty appealing. And in his haste to boot you out of the seat you hadn't got into yet, he told Max not to bother going through this process of getting you a licence because he wanted to put uh, Batagia back in. Yeah, it's good of him, wasn't it? <laughs> but I guess by this point, you, you almost had an ally in Max because Max was quick to remind Andrea that he'd already made his two permitted driver changes of the season, so he couldn't make another one. And I believe Max relayed yeah. that story to you firsthand over the phone around the time you were discussing the license as well. Is that true? Yeah, Max called up and uh, he was actually laughing. You know, um, I used to, you know, I didn't know Max terribly well, but we did get on. Uh, I think that Max and Bernie kind of like the fact that I'm you know, fairly straightforward and up for a laugh, but also, you know, desperately serious. And, and so I did, I, you know, I got on with both of them very well, you know, so that's good. But yeah, that was, that was great. So then I'm armed with my license and lucky me, I was able to continue with Andrea Moda. <laughs> the once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, yeah. And next up was Barcelona, your first weekend as a fully fledged F1 driver and as we'll come to in a moment, probably the moment of your F1 career you're most famous for, before we get to that and your journey to the track in the morning, um, we're going to hear a quick story from Roberto in the other car because this was quite alarming. I'll be interested to see if you remember this as well. Roberto told this story on the official F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, which I'd highly recommend everybody checks out for some weird and wonderful stories from his career, most of which was spent at the back of the grid. But let's listen to what he says happened with his car at the Spanish Grand Prix. I was going to go out. The engineer comes to me and said, Robert, would you please go out and stop at the back straight? I said, what are you talking about? I think it was Barcelona, if I'm not wrong. I said, why? Well, let me show you something. And he shows me a crack on the rear wing uh, side plates, uh, uh, main plates about two inches long. So if you use this rear wing, it's going to fly off. 
So please don't. I said, well, can you put another one? Say we don't have another one. And we need to just need to show like we're doing a job. And then eventually we're going to get this fixed. Now, Perry, as we'll come to in a moment, you had a lot on your own plate at the time Roberto was probably having this conversation. So were you aware of that story at the time that Roberto was supposedly told your rear, rear wing has a huge crack in it? Uh, can you just take the car out and break down on the track, please? Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't know that. Um, you know, I, I didn't really talk a lot to Roberto, to be quite frank. But um, yeah, I'd had my own struggles getting to the track in the morning anyway, um, because we were there for pre-qualifying, which started at eight o'clock. But the night before, um, I was with the team and it was getting to like 12 o'clock at night and I was begging for somebody to take me to the hotel, you know, because we had no rental cars and everything else. So finally somebody did, dropped me downtown Barcelona. And it was like, I was, you know, I'm a Grand Prix driver, everything, I walked into this room, and there's like 10 different beds in there. I'm expecting the mechanics and we're all going to be sleeping in the same room. So I thought, okay, try and get some shut eye now because it is an early start and it's already midnight. Um, so I've gone to sleep. Obviously, one of them is going to wake me in the morning and take me back to the track. So I've woken up and um, I'm thinking, I must have been asleep for quite a few hours now because I can see daylight permeating through these paper-thin curtains, you know. And I've looked around and there's nobody in there. And I've checked the clock and it's like half past seven. Now, I'm supposed to be on track for my Grand Prix debut at eight o'clock. I've gone... Oh, my God. I've gone into the bathroom, got washed and changed faster than Superman, believe me, you know. Run downstairs, praying that there's going to be somebody there. Nobody there. How am I going to get there? This is the God's honest truth. In through the door walks Andrea Sassetti's brother, who's like, you can, there's an alcohol haze coming off this boat. He's just got in from a nightclub. So I said, I can't remember his name. I said, but I've got to get to the circuit. He said, no problem, you know. Jumped in the car. They, they'd employed the wrong driver. They should have employed him. It was lunatic. <laughs> it was going to cross Barcelona absolutely flat out. Red lights. I'm sitting there going, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. We've screened up about six or seven minutes to wait. I've run through the paddock, got into the kit immediately. Heart's beating like that. I've jumped in the car. They've strapped me down. Uh, uh, it won't start. It won't start. So they keep pushing uh, the quick start straight into the air, air box. <laughs> Carried on. <laughs> Bang. Started out. They've put way too much in. It's all caught. Flames shot straight back out the engine cover, right away around my head. Everybody's going, bang, 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 trying to put it out. It feels suddenly. Now, this is all happening like, as I'm talking about it. So I've got to the circuit, running, got changed, got strapped in. Bang, the seat's not made properly, but who cares? I'm going to try and qualify it. Now I'm on fire. Now they're putting me out. Now the engine's starting. They've gone, go. <laughs> I've gone out, turned right, got to the start, finish, cover me the uh, end of pit lane. Yeah. Pulled away. Engine's cut out. It's rolled to a halt. Well, that was it. I always knew I was going to set records in Formula One. Um, and I did immediately. The shortest ever distance to try and qualify for a Grand Prix, 30 metres. And I just got out and stood next to the car. And I've considered like my own version of home alone, being nearly killed in ro multiple road accidents, being nearly burnt to death in a car, failing to qualify for Grand Prix. And it wasn't even eight o'clock in the morning. So that was, yeah, that was my adventure. And you can imagine the difference to that level of preparation and expectation nowadays, you know, from, you know, 
trainers, the right diet, the right this, the seat that fits, the right overalls, the right everything as it should be, as opposed to this lunatic, lunatic life that was, because it wasn't stopping there, trying to trying to keep the, the, a roof above our head back in England was also a problem. No money, juggling like mad to even try and get to these races. And it was, um, yeah, it was, it was upsetting because I'd come from America where, you know, I was at the front on pole an awful lot and looking, you know, fairly cute to be quite frank. And now looking like Mickey Mouse on acid. You know? <laughs> on the, um, on the, 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 comment about the mechanics not coming back. Uh, Andrea was asked about that in his Auto Sprint interview a few years ago. Uh, and he did he did acknowledge it. He did accept it. He said, uh, the mechanics worked until midnight, so I didn't treat them like friars. I let them go party. Uh, no acknowledgement of the impact that, of course, had. But Ed, let's bring you in here for a moment. We've heard the story about Moreno's car with the cracked rear wing, so can you stop it on track, please? We've heard all of what Perry's just told us there. And the car basically limps over the pit exit line and then he's stranded the wrong side of the pit lane. If Andrea Moda is already having all of these disasters basically taking place at once, should it have been told, even at this early stage, to go away and get its act together before it came back? Well, it's clear there's nothing good about anything that's going on there. <laughs> you want to make allowances for new teams to, to make the progress, but kind of funny as it is to laugh about it, there is a serious side as well, because if you're putting parts on cars that are going to fail, there's a massive safety element to it. Even if you might know most of these parts are going to fail, you can say, well, just stop before the rear wing breaks. That's fine. But who knows what else could could fail on it? And, you know, Andrea Moda may be a slow Grand Prix car, but when it moved, it, it was still going plenty fast enough to do some damage. So it, it, it was clear this was a team that was that was really kind of off the pace, not just in, in literal terms, but in terms of what a Grand Prix team needed to be. But it's difficult because you'll have a group of people there who are sincerely doing their best. You know, that there's serious mechanics working for this team, serious drivers, and you want to give them the best chance to make it work, don't you? Um, but it's clear that there were various financial troubles going on, uh, which I imagine we'll get into in a bit more detail going on. So, I think the signs probably were there that, that this was a team that wasn't going in the right direction. But I imagine that FI and F1 wanted to at least give them a, a chance, particularly seeing as that determination had been shown to at least turn up and, and try and make things work. Make things work. But it, it's not good and it, it's not kind of a good look for F1. Even in the early 90s, F1 was moving away from that, let alone um, now when it's totally alien. And also... Ed, I think to we, at the start of every episode, we obviously say, what's the first thing you think about when we think of this subject? But to butcher that question slightly, when you think of Perry's F1 career, is that image of him stood looking down at his car, having stopped at the, at the pit exit, is that the image you think of when you think of Perry's trials and tribulations of 1992. Perry's nodding, so it obviously is for him. Well, it sums it up, doesn't it? And uh, I think I think it went on the front of your book, didn't it? It was the, the perfect uh, image. Although, funnily enough, there's one of, of you kind of pushing the car and sort of trying to steer it to safety. That's the one that just leaps to my mind. I think the one on the cover of your book is you sort of standing there, arms yeah, folded, think, right. <laughs> thinking, yeah. what on earth have I got myself in for? So that's a better shape for a, uh, for a book cover. But yeah, it, it, it's a visual that sums up the whole situation. And ultimately, 
in terms of remembering <laughs> various Grand Prix career, I think you you were credited with about twenty laps completed in the uh, in the the various practice sessions. That you, uh, yes. If if that, yeah. So you didn't exactly have much yeah. chance to do uh, anything else. So um, yeah, yeah. It's, Thank God I was fit. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Plenty of. Uh, Plenty of learning all the, the circuit access roads and that kind of thing, I imagine. Exactly. Things did go a little bit better at Imola. Andrea Moda registered 15 laps and uh, Moreno missed the cut for pre-qualifying by four tenths of a second. Uh, Perry, you were another eight seconds back, but you did at least get your seven laps, which is progress. Uh, but this weekend gave Moreno some confidence and he's admitted in interviews that seeing the team get closer to that pre-qualifying pace gave him an idea and Roberto said the mechanics were very good friends of mine and I said to them we have a car that might not be a bad car why mm -hmm. don't we just try to fix this car as best we can and get one car going let's try mm. to qualify this car it would be a great achievement for us and we worked on that so Perry at that stage were you aware that those sort of conversations were taking place in the team and Roberto effectively saying let's be a one car team rather than running two cars badly no I wasn't aware and you know that was probably my fault that I wasn't aware because I was just naive you know I just naturally I'm quite a trusting person to be frank and I just thought that we're out here together and this is what we're going to be doing but you know you're right to point out about the eight seconds off the pace but you know, there was kind of a couple of reasons for that. It's like the engine wasn't working properly and the diff had uh, frozen, basically, or was the diff was binding. Um, so you just can't you just can't do anything like that, um, not at all, you know. And there was no, you have to also remember, there was no testing for me. So, you know, Roberto, Roberto's a very, very good racing driver, you know. So, um, you know, in the right kind of car, of course, he'd qualify for any Grand Prix and, to be quite frank, I'd like to think I would. Otherwise, I was I'd been wasting my time across all that, <laughs> all those years of coming through. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you put Ayrton in my car, he, he wouldn't have qualified, no matter what a genius he was. That's 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 all there is to it, you know. So it was it was tough. But you live to you live to fight another day. You think, okay, we've got rolling this time. Maybe if there's consideration and focus to develop this, maybe we can get somewhere further, you know? So I kind of, given the lengths that I've gone to with my career to get to that point, um, you know, I wasn't going to just stomp off into the distance like a prima donna and saying, this isn't working for me. And plus the fact there wasn't exactly a work strength drive waiting for me around the corner. You know, it was like, okay, try and make the most of this. Try and... Um, well, I actually wasn't trying to impress people with my focus because that's that's just how I am. And if they were impressed, then there might be opportunities. And funny enough, there was. It was getting spotted again by arrows who I'd already done some testing for. But that's a different story. So, yeah, but you just walk along the pits. And, you know, this is a cruel game. Somebody somewhere is going to be looking and say, he's eight seconds off the pace. What a wally. And you just go, well, actually, mate, I'm not. <laughs> but... This is what's going on, you know? I mean, I kind of, I, I probably don't do myself any favours sometimes with the, with the giggles and the jokes, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I think I'm most proud about a description that said I'm, I'm actually somebody who's an incredibly serious person with a massive sense of humour. That's the, the problem. And, and to get through these things, then rather than holding your head in your hands and, and retiring, I, you know, try and stay light, try and stay punchy, keep a smile and, and try and stay stay positive. But um, 
But it, it took everything I had to try and do that with everything that was going on. I, I'm not getting the violin out here, but we are just recalling what what it takes inside because my heart was breaking. You know, I wanted to be a Formula One driver and I'm being made to look like an idiot, you know. Yeah, we will come back to that Arrows story uh, as we move through the season. But Ed, looking at Moreno's suggestion, does that actually, is there some logic or some sense behind that? Or is an evidence? logic. Yeah. What do you think, Ed? Can you see where Roberto's coming from? Yeah, well, if you can only scrape together enough bits to make one car work vaguely properly, then ultimately you have got to uh, to pile into that. And of course, I'm sure Roberto felt that that should definitely be his car. So that's the, the kind of politics and the ruthlessness of it. So there's a little bit of self-interest there. And, you know, there's stories about having to scrounge parts off other teams, etc. So this was this was pretty hard work. Uh, for a team in that situation, if you've got any chance to qualify, you've you've got to try. And, and the, the ingredients of the package, you know, the, the, the car design wasn't horrific. The engine wasn't brilliant, but it was all right. You know, you could run properly, get a bit of pace out of the car. Nothing special, but getting onto the grid was uh, was realistic. So they had, they had to go for it. But you also have to do it in the right way. You have to be honest with both your drivers. And if you've got one driver who's basically almost wasting their time, you've got to be clear on that. You've also got to... Also, you have a bit of a responsibility to make that clear to the outside world, even if that's not necessarily good for your team politically, because it does make a, a serious racing driver look look bad. Because as Perry said, people look at it, and even people who understand motorsport will, it's sort of even if they they're not, they're sort of subconsciously just thinking, oh, that just shows he's he's not that good. Even though if they stopped and thought for five seconds, they'd realise it was a it was a, a hopeless case. So, yeah, logical enough, but. Uh, but not not great for the for the driver who's on the the bad end of that uh, coin toss, shall we say? On the other side of things, though, is that there was nobody inside F1 at that moment that was going to give me the chance anyway. Um, so it was kind of you go, okay, right, you know. I, I mean, I must admit, I thought it was going to be tough with them, but I really had no idea how tough. But honestly, I'm just being honest. There, there was no, there you know the. The stuff in the States has dried up because the team ran out of money, uh, even though after all that we were doing on a shoestring budget against the works Jags, against the works Nissans, against the works Toyotas and Nissans. I think I said Nissans twice. They had a lot of cars. Um, so, you know, but there was that dried up, you know, and I'm, I'm not unique here. There's been a whole bunch of drivers. Roberto himself has, uh, has suffered so many times with being superstar or uh, of driving for really rubbish teams. The, the, the most important thing that Roberto ever said to me, to be quite frank, was when I first joined the team and he said, Perry, don't expect too much here. You know, I kind of was expecting it to go on track, I must admit. But, um, you know, but that was, uh, anyway, we'll carry on after you. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's, it's all relative, isn't it? There's, there's don't expect too much and there's, well, there's got to be a baseline somewhere. And next up was Monaco and Moreno had more ideas up his sleeve to prepare for this one. Uh, he says that he suggested to his engineer that they focused on making the car handle well at low speed. So they yeah, went. A good idea. So they went to a small track in Italy that only had first, second, and third gear corners to get the car ready for the tight confines of Monaco. And as we're about to explain, miraculously it worked. Uh, Roberto was third fastest in pre-qualifying, meaning he comfortably made it into proper qualifying for the first time. And Moreno said on his Beyond the Grid interview. The most pleasure I had in racing is driving to the pits in Monaco 
and every mechanic, every engineer in the pits clapping for me. That sensation, it will stay with me forever. It's unbelievable pleasure. And that was just for making it through to be one of the 30 cars to get one of the 26 slots on the grid. But Roberto wasn't done there. He was 20th in Thursday qualifying, then barely ran on Saturday, only doing five laps to save the car as the team was still limited on parts. But he improved his time slightly early in the session, then had the nervous wait as he fell down the order. And right at the death, Eric van der Poel fell short by 0.036 seconds. So remarkably, based on what we've told you so far, and Andrea Moda had qualified for a Grand Prix in 26th place. Sassetti said in his interview years later that we've referenced, I knew it could happen because the car wasn't bad. We just had no money for testing and development. And Moreno's adamant if he'd been able to run properly on that Saturday session, he could have qualified much higher. Now, Perry, you'd had your own brief, unpleasant experience of driving an Andrea Moda around Monaco before the team, I believe, parked you in case Roberto needed your car. From what you experienced, did that car have any business getting into any race, even in Monaco? Well, I mean, you know, to be completely honest, you can't you can't rely on my experience of that of the car at uh, Monaco to talk correctly about that. Um, I guarantee you, getting that car on the grid was more about Roberto. Um, but here's why, and I don't think anybody's ever really kind of worked this out. Is that back in those days there was a lot of chances as new teams were coming in, and there was quite a churn of drivers at the back end, you know. So there were quite a few drivers there that had probably never been around Monaco before in a Grand Prix car. So that that's one thing. So they're in cars that aren't particularly wonderful. So they've got their own set of issues as well. While you've got all Roberto needed was something that can actually keep going around. And of course, he's highly experienced at Monaco. So that was Roberto time. Do you know what I mean? Uh, which would capitalise, not necessarily against the people ahead of him on the grid, because they're all experienced as well. But it was certainly an ace in the team's uh, deck for him being ahead of maybe slightly better cars, but with drivers that weren't sure within five or six laps. The stars aligned, to be quite frank, uh, on that one. You know, if Quali had gone on maybe one lap longer, probably Eric would have got it in, you know. But Eric was driving a you know, piece of junk at the same time, you know, it's uh, and Eric knows what he's doing. So, so I do think that, you know, the stars aligned then to Roberto did a super job, but um, you know, we're not talking about the, the world's best ever lap. It was a really good job that Roberto did and took advantage of his huge experience around there. And that's, that's one of the things that helped get, and the car ran, you know, it does always help. But when I got out there, it was like, they were sent. I was sent out. Uh, they provided. I kept asking. They wouldn't provide a, 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 um, a, a proper seat for me. Uh, this is the first time again that I had the steering flexing in there. I'd never been around Monaco before, and I was trying to qualify this thing with each corner that was new and trying, trying to keep my foot in. And with no proper seat fitting, getting buffeted, the, the steering moving slightly. Uh, I can honestly tell you that there's been moments in motor racing when you got scared, you know, for, for a little while. Something's happened, you've had to get it back under control. Normally pouring rain or something when you can't see and your heart beats right up there. I guarantee you that was terrifying, trying to, because I was being silly. 
I was being very, very silly, trying to do what I was trying to do uh, in those situations. And, you know, I mean, as you know, the car was completely black. All we needed to do was put brass handles on the side. It would have saved time burying. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was an outlap, one time lap, and then I had to come in. And by now I'm getting kind of pissed off, you know, because this is this is getting silly, really silly. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great story that Andrew Moda, you know, managed to make the, the break on that one. But um, I think some of the things that I'm talking about may help explain it a bit. Yeah, that's the sort of explanation you can only get from inside the team. And Ed, I know that Moreno qualifying for this race in that car is actually one of your, in general, one of your favourite achievements by anyone in, in F1, I think. Well, it's just so improbable, wasn't it? And uh, Perry's explained very well the circumstances. All you can do in qualifying is try and get as close to the maximum out the car you can and hope that others underachieve. And uh, you know, a few others did underachieve a bit, and, uh, and that added up to, to making it onto the grid. And I think it the fact that the car made the grid once does just add a little bit of lustre to the uh, to the Andrea Moda story, I think, because it, it, it's just a contrast to everything else that happened. So it's nice there was there was one little moment, but obviously it wasn't uh, wasn't especially sustainable, uh, uh, should we say? But it, it is a shame that it comes at the, at the expense of uh, of a second driver who's not not even being given sort of the the one percent chance to do anything um, i mean even the game though ed to be quite frank is that you know i wasn't in the car i wasn't one to put it on the grid and i had this awful time that i just explained but there was still some optimism in me thinking okay maybe this is a breakthrough maybe they'll take it more seriously maybe they'll get some kind of attention and maybe that will reflect into what's happening with my car so there was that kind of you know a kind of that optimism and thinking there may be another gap to go for you know it's just inbuilt in me survival how can we use anything to go to the next step sorry to interrupt no it's, it's absolutely right and uh, from what i know about your career that's those are the kind of low probability chances that got you to where you were because otherwise if you hadn't pursued those sorts of chances you wouldn't have got probably anywhere unfortunately that was the peak for Andrea Moda, and it hit new lows over the next two weekends. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> yeah, that was our peak. <laughs> because in Canada, the engines never turned up, initially because they were being held by a forwarding agent that claimed it was owed money by the team, and by the time that was sorted out, the engines were bumped from one flight because it was overweight with cargo, and then unloaded from another, apparently because of a British Airways computer problem. That prompted Sassetti to release a statement complaining about Foker's freight organisation. And in the end, Judd arranged for an engine to be borrowed from Brabham for Moreno's car, which ran for four laps, 18 seconds off the pace before it broke down. Things got even worse in France when Andrea Moda was the only team to get completely stuck in one of the infamous French truck drivers' strikes. There's no denying that those strikes can be pretty impactful but it's worth noting that every other team found a way to get themselves to Manicor. Perry, what did you make of, of all this, of those two events? There was even some suggestion that Sassetti was almost looking for any excuse he could find to miss races without it looking like it was the team's fault to avoid some fines and things like that. Do you think there was maybe an element of that going on here? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. I'm trying to save some money. I mean, on this particular one, 
um, again, sorry, but this is a, a really personal story, is that, you know, we were up you know, at home, we were up to our neck in debt. You know, uh, the house was kind of really, really looking shaky. Um, and I didn't think there was any way we could stop it, to be quite honest, going. Two small kids. Um, but, you know, I always said to Karen, I'm going to be in Formula One and one day we're going to be at Monaco and everything else. And uh, so we managed to do it. And I did a deal with a, uh, um, a kind of uh, an agency out there that were uh, entertaining people. So they paid for my transport to get out there. I took Karen. They paid for the hotel as long as I gave speeches, etc. And Karen and I uh, arrived uh, out there. And so we got to Magni uh, circuit. Um, and we've walked in, you know, to find the team and we've walked up the pit lane, uh, at the back in the paddock, pardon me, and, um, didn't see the truck. And I'm thinking, uh, okay, we'll, we'll walk back again. So I'm with Karen, we're walking back the other way. Didn't see the truck. Everybody else is there. So I'd not been contacted or anything about this. And we then found out that, uh, and this is what they'd cited. Uh, this is the first time I learned what root barrage means, um, you know, because there was the legitimate lorry driver strike out there, the, uh, which were cutting off routes, you know. Um, but, you know, Andrea Moda used that as an excuse not to turn up. And then trying to explain this to your wife, who's like, you know, going about, and it was, you know, heartbreaking. You know, this is like, you know, that's the kind of human interest bit which I don't often talk about, but, you know, I think you guys are going vertical on detail, so you can have a bit. Um, and it's all about, you know, home life as well. At the end of the day, you've got to survive these things and keep coming through. So I mention it because clearly I think a lot of people do know the knocks that I was taking and come through motor racing to try and forge a career. But, you know, as probably with all of us, there's, you know, people back at home as well that are equally feeling the pressure and, and trying to live with that. And unless they decide that they can live with it as well and try to go with this in this situation, then you're on a hiding to nothing. Ed, if we look at the high of Monaco and then the two races that followed, did this just tell the world after all that Andrea Moda hadn't turned a corner at all just because it had qualified for one race because it had taken so many steps back since then? Yeah, it's uh, very much a, a steep decline after the the so-called peak, uh, which I guess showed the, the reality for the team. And, and of course, it was always going to be, you know, even if they got the cars running, it was going to be harder at more orthodox circuits, I guess, to, uh, to 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 get one on the grid. But as soon as you get problems with, uh, you know, freight and obviously the the, the Judd stuff um, for their, their struggles previously, there were arguments over. Who owned, who owned what and who owed, owed what money to who. So this was all going on in the background. So the, the kind of deep-rooted problems that showed this wasn't just a team that was struggling a little bit initially and that there was something more problematic underpinning it was probably becoming fairly clear to, to, to everyone. So yeah, I imagine it was a increasingly desperate experience for everyone everyone working for that team and I was just saying you know people who had uh, had bills to pay and uh, more at stake than just qualifying for a Grand Prix. The team did at least make it to Silverstone for Perry's home race, the British Grand Prix. And Moreno managed a pretty respectable 14 laps, but he did miss the pre-qualifying cut by 1.6 seconds. However, the real story of this weekend was all about Perry, who only got two laps late in the session 
on Moreno's used wet tyres when the track had basically dried out. Sassetti was asked about this incident in his Auto Sprint interview, and he said, It was what we had at that moment. At war, you use the weapons you have got. So, Perry, to continue the war analogy, had he sent you onto the battlefield with the equivalent of a water pistol at this point? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing is, is that I kind of found, you know, when I said that it was pretty stupid at Monaco, what I was attempting to do, um, it, it now got really daft, to be quite frank, because I'd, I'd really lost my rag inside the car. And I think, I'm not exaggerating by saying, but I think my first lap that, as you know, was on those tyres in the dry, I actually went fastest, you know, so at least I knew my way around Silverstone. But then as I come round, I, I knew that the clutch was going, you know, and I came round, and this is the old circuit where the pit lane used to be, so you're coming out of Woodcock, and I'd gone completely onto the grass immediately, and I stayed flat and just changed up on the grass because I just... I just went, I, I really don't care, you know, that was, and that, that's dangerous, isn't it? You know, when you, when you've got that mindset, that is now becoming really dumb. And then I was terribly lucky that the clutch went, I actually didn't complete the two time lapse. Yeah, the, the clutch went um, because I was about to go even more stupid and but I couldn't. So again, it's all. You know, I'd, sometimes I would tell that story as a laugh and a joke and everything else, but we seem to be having a fairly serious chat now, and it's kind of drawing that out of me, of that mindset. Um, and that was, you then look back on that and just go, this this is just, really, it's, it's going nowhere. And, you know, you, you're not far away from getting smashed to pieces here, you know? And as you probably know, and you'll come on to, there was another episode a little later on, which which really nearly finished the job off you know so yeah so in front of your home crowd again you know you see a lot of people in the stands with go perry go and stuff like that you know and it's really sweet um and then we had the t-shirts made up which was like you know a, a, a faux kind of political statement let pell out you know get him onto the track and it was a good place to have those t-shirts because again they'd kept me in the pit lane all qualified and then when I was released, as you said, it's on the wet tyres on a um, on a dry track. So, yeah. In Hungary, there was some good news for Andrea Moda. Only one Brabham turned up. So Moreno was guaranteed to progress from pre-qualifying. And I say Roberto was guaranteed because the team made sure of it by sending Perry out in the final minute of the session, meaning it was too late to get around and start a flying lap. Perry, you had a couple of, shall we say, discussions with Sassetti around this time. One when you flew to Italy, which you said in your book accomplished nothing except bringing a mutual hostility out into the open. And then again in Hungary when you finally snapped with him. And amid all this, there was still the shadow of Batagia's $1 million hanging over you as he kept reminding the team that he had that money, not that the team could do anything about it under F1's rules. But when you reached this this breaking point with Andrea, what was it like finally having it out with him? Uh, I well, there, there's another little story even inside that because at that um, race, Jackie Oliver had come up to me and said, uh, "Perry, we want you to do some testing for us at uh, Spa. I think it's going to be the following week or something like that." So I said, "Okay, Jackie. Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to get back in sorry, properly. You know, and that's it." And so you know, I. 
I had quite a few supporters down the pit lane, to be quite frank. And so I'd say, okay, Jackie, yeah, that's, that's going to be great. Then it came back that they needed to get Andrea's permission or that Jackie was real keen to get Andrea's permission. So I thought, well, you know, they kind of owe me this one. But we didn't get around to talking about it until after what was supposed to have been qualified. Now, put your head back into where I am. They let me out for qualifying with 45 seconds of the session remaining. So that means as I come round, the session was finished and I got the checkered flag. Well, I pulled up and basically, you know, in my younger days, I could be a little bit punchy, to be quite honest. Um, and that was it. I was coming in and I just wanted to get hold of everybody and, 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 and punch them, you know. So I kind of got withheld on that one because, uh, you know, understandably by now, you know. But, um, yeah, I was in no way to take any prisoners by now. So, yeah, there was a, a few words coming out, as you'd expect. Um, and then, of course, everybody realised that um, they needed Andrea's permission for me to go test, unbelievably, for arrows. And funny enough, that didn't come. So I was thinking about leaving the team and then just going to work with arrows full stop. But there's one reason I didn't. is because the next race I knew was going to be Spa. And Spa often rained. And I'd had some pretty damn good moments at Spa. And I thought, I might be able to do this. I just might be able to do it. So that was the entire reason to, to gamble on staying with Andrea Moda, not go off to Arrows testing. Because, I, you know, Jackie was making no promises to lead to a Grand Prix drive. But John Wickham, who was team manager, had really wanted me at Arrows before that anyway. You know, so there was, you know, maybe, but which way do you go? Anyway, I, I went the Andrea Moda way and we went uh, to the Belgian Grand Prix for Spa. Uh, I'm leaving you this dramatic break there, obviously, rather than come straight in with what then happened at Spa. See, it's this, it's this story stuff, isn't it? It's, it's, like, it's, it's like you've got our script in front of you and you know exactly where we're going with it next. Dun, dun, dun. We, we'll break off very quickly to talk about Sassetti a little bit more. Much was made of, uh, of his look, his appearance with his black hair, black sunglasses, black leather jacket. Uh, black boots, although he described that as his working look. And in his Auto Sprint interview, he said the other F1 team bosses viewed him as a negative alien. And he said one of the few people in the F1 paddock to show the team any respect was Ayrton Senna because he was a friend of Moreno's. Uh, he also took issue with his portrayal as a playboy. Firstly, saying that in the fashion world, he was used to uh, an attitude of women are not a problem. But he added that he didn't have time for that sort of thing in F1 because he had more important things on his mind with the team. Ed, quite simply, from everything we've heard so far about Sassetti and his team, was this just a man who was miles out of his depth? I think probably the most generous thing you could say is a man miles out of his element. Uh, and, and we've seen plenty of these in, in Formula One, haven't we? They, they've, been, uh, they've done other things and they come in and... Perhaps they they feel they can do stuff on on image or whatever, whereas actually the stopwatch doesn't lie, does it? So sport is a is a pretty brutal competition where you know you you can't kind of fake it, shall we? Uh, uh, shall we say so? Everything I know about Sassetti does say he didn't 
quite know how to play the game. By his own admission, I think he he didn't really know a great deal about the business of Formula One. And we talked earlier about perhaps not doing things the right way in terms of getting the right people on side for when they were, they were coming in. So clearly it was quite a, I mean, that, that word alien is probably quite a good uh, word to use because he, he was uh, very much an alien in the, in the Formula One world. Uh, clearly, I get the impression there was some genuine enthusiasm there, but enthusiasm doesn't get you a very long way when it comes to to, to motorsport. You've got to have a bit more, uh, a bit more to it. So, yeah, one of those, one of those typical characters you got who turned up briefly in Formula One in this period when the kind of money growing drew in a lot of people who thought they they'd like a piece of it or were just attracted to the to the whole glamour of it, which was obviously becoming more and more global and you know the television coverage was becoming ubiquitous so it was just getting bigger and bigger so everyone wanted a piece of it and perry you talked about your optimism for spa before we get to spa it was around the time of this hungary incident that fisa was beginning to run out of patience with andrea moda fed up with the the shenanigans fed up with this you know not trying to run a second car properly so they the team was told to start showing some effort towards running a real two-car team if they wanted to stay in F1. Did did that leave you sort of thinking, okay, I might actually get a crack here because the team's now getting the pressure from from above? Yeah, I mean, this is Max again. Um, they're, they're seeing, and you know, as I said, there was a lot of other team owners and, and people that I knew and had, you know, seen me do some stuff uh, where they just knew that this was kind of getting more and more dangerous and, you know, I was getting stuffed. The image of the sport, etc. So yeah, they were issued a communique from uh, FISA to turn around and say, I think the I think the wording was something like, you've got to make a concerted effort to run a two-car team. You know that that was it. So um, then they attempted to do that at Spa. And just before we get to that story, Ed, was did FISA do the right thing stepping in here and telling this team to buck its ideas up? Yeah, they they had to. They gave it some time. It clearly needed a needed a kick. Formula One needed credible teams, you know, proper teams that were trying to do the job properly and safely, as we've mentioned as well. So, yeah, they absolutely needed it to be the right kind of team to be in Formula One, particularly as I was talking about earlier, the increasing professionalism, etc. They didn't want fly-by-night operations. So it comes a point where you've got to put the pressure on and say, right, you've got to put up and, and shut up and, and show that you deserve to be here. Actually, chaps, there's one thing that you're missing on this as well, is that because of Andrea Moda's inclusion uh, on the entry list, uh, that's what necessitated pre-qualifying. Um, now, if we hadn't have been there, and I knew that it was saying that it was really getting a few team owners' nerves to have to do the pre-qualifying as well. If we hadn't have been there, it would have just been normal qualifying, uh, let's go, and then top 26 out of what would have been you know, 30 or 32 or whatever. Yeah, and we actually ended up with a, a 30-car entry next time out of Spa because Brabham didn't turn up at all. So That's that right. meant the Andrea yeah. Motors were straight into qualifying, qualifying. itself. Uh, so Perry... That's where, I, that's where I met Nigel. Yes. <laughs> so Perry got a chance. and But on track, it had we had the usual nonsense that I think we've become used to by now. Uh, both drivers did a handful of laps, miles off the pace. Moreno had a gearbox problem, so he took over Perry's car, which then blew up. The team had no spare engines, so Perry got sent out using Moreno's car that had the faulty gearbox. But Perry, the, the numbers don't really do justice to your experience 
of this weekend, do they? It's not one where you look at the timing sheets and you go, that's the story of, of your weekend on track before we even get to what happened with the team off track this weekend. You know, there was a, a weird situation, probably an old friend of both yours, Tony Dodgins, you know, the, um, the Autosport Formula One reporter. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm keyed up. I'm getting ready. I know this thing's not going to last long, but um, at least another way around, I'm going to keep my foot in and, and, you know, just pray, basically, that I can do something and survive it. And Tony was standing by the car, and he's, he was really white as a sheep, basically. And he just looked and said, Perry, I've got a terrible feeling. I've got a really terrible feeling. Please don't get in the car. Don't go. I said, Tony, I've, I've, got, I've got no choice. You know, this is what I've chosen to do. This is everything's at stake here. The house by now was going, you know, it was being repossessed, got massive debts, family at home. And, you know, you've got to you've got to take this chance. So this is going to be the that, you know, even if it's just going to be one or two, forget build up. This is like straight in and pray you've judged it right with whatever's underneath you. Um, so then it's you know, strapped in as hard as I could. The thing actually started, went out onto the track, did a pretty quick, by my standards, Andrea Motor standards, kind of warm-up lap, and then came screaming into, as I'm coming toward the source, it's like, this car's come fast, this is on the out, and I'm so watching it, it's Nigel in the Williams, and I'm thinking, wow, that looks great. <laughs> I've left it so late to break. I've gone, oh my <laughs> God, because I've been so preoccupied watching him in the Williams, he's now breaking brilliantly and all this kind of stuff. I'm heading straight for him and I'm banging on the anchors and I've just missed him. And inside I've gone, oh my God, you nearly took Nigel out of qualifying, which would have damaged his chances of getting to pole. But anyway, so I launched it on the lap. And as you guys mentioned earlier, even a piece of junk, we're going to be doing 170, 180 going toward Eau Rouge. And there's no build-up time. You just go... I think I can take this flat. So again, and I, I'm not looking for a laugh here. I, I think it shows that there was some stupidity going on inside the inside the car because it was stupid to do that. Uh, the only thing is, as I turned in, the the media part of the left where you, where you turn in, I just noticed that the steering was actually really it shouldn't have been that tight. Now you've noticed that, but you've now travelled a long way by the time you've noticed that, and you're almost in the dip. And I decided this is the cleverest thing I ever did, is I decided not to trust the car. So I slammed the brakes on as hard as I could, and I couldn't turn the steering wheel. And this is it's very difficult to fit all these emotions and what was happening and what I actually did into a half quarter of a second. Whatever I did was right, okay? So that's that was the result. Because... As I'm hitting the brakes, et cetera, I've just managed to now maybe turn the steering wheel a little bit. I've gone off the track, up alongside the tyres, having reduced a lot of speed, I might add, you know, and out the other side. And then suddenly the car steered because I was now so slow. And instantly I thought, steering rack, steering rack's flex. So I went a little bit faster down the back straight, tightened up, went a bit slower, looser. So the downforce the steering rack flex, and it doesn't allow the steering arms to come in when you're trying to turn. So that's the thing. So I came straight into the pits, and I said, um, guys, I think the steering rack's flexing. I said, we know. I said, how do, you, how do you know? So they said, oh, 
through Roberto's car. We tested it last week and found it was flexing. By the way, that was an Italian accent. Um, and I went, so then you sent me out in it. Yeah. That's when you know that they don't know what they're doing because, you know, this story has been retold many times and there was a lot of people there that saw it. So there's there's no sprucing up here. I don't need to spruce any of these stories up, you know? Um, and that, yeah, I've had some really big crashes. We all have. And I reckon this was maybe the closest that was uh, that was there to say goodnight, really, you know? And you just go, this isn't Formula One, this isn't the team. And I didn't even have to make a decision because after that, Max has gone, you're banned. Not to me, to the team. Yeah, and as if that wasn't enough drama and <clears throat> frankly terrifying uh, incidents on track for the team, off track, this was when it was all going on as well. Uh, Sassetti had survived an attempt by an Italian company to seize the team's equipment on the Thursday before the race, but the supply and transport company Always Forward was granted a seizure order by the court a day later. Sassetti denied the accusations made in the claim and was asked to provide invoices to back this up. Once these were inspected by a judge on the Saturday, <laughs> an order was given for the arrest of Sassetti and team manager Serge Zargo on the grounds of suspected forgery. Sassetti said in his Auto Sprint interview years later that he'd already left the track by this point and was 50 kilometers away, but when he was called to say there were problems, he came back and he returned with a clear conscience and nothing to fear. He described his arrest in the middle of the paddock as a show, an art-constructed operation. Police came around me, put me in their van, and then went slowly through the paddock. And on the allegations, he said, a supplier claimed that I made false invoices, but the false one was him. Perry, did you witness all of this going on? I saw him get banged up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, well, we weren't actually complete. Well, pardon me, you know, it, it's becoming more and more clear. I wasn't aware of all the lot was going on. Um, I wasn't aware that that's why it was picked up. I, I thought it was to do with something else, you know. But um, I, I did, I did make a bit up in the book. Is that I imagined seeing him leaning out the back of the squad car. <laughs> Just looking at me going, I hate you, McCarthy, as he's being driven away. I hate you. I hate you to the day I die. <laughs> I, I do have that image burned in my memory from, from reading the book. Um, as you mentioned, a week later, Andrea Moda was kicked out of F1 by FISA for bringing the championship into disrepute, you'll be shocked to learn. This was proposed by the F1 Permanent Bureau, which I'd never heard of before, which at the time was made up of Bernie Eccleston, Max Mosley and Luca de Montezemolo. Now that is a powerful trio. Their proposal went to the F1 Commission, which unsurprisingly supported the suggestion via fax vote eight days after the Belgian Grand Prix. Andre Moda wasn't expected to challenge the decision, especially as it only had one engine left by now, and even that was subject to an injunction by another creditor. But we'll find out what the team did in a moment. Ed, after everything we've discussed, and especially what happened at Spa, was F1 right to call time on this nonsense at this point? And arguably, should they have done it sooner? Yeah, the evidence that they were right to do it is overwhelming. That whole thing about the, the steering rack. You know, to, to ask a driver knowingly to go out with a flexing steering rack would be unethical, shall we say. But this goes beyond that. Not even to tell them is, is, is absurd. And actually... 
you know, you could say that that was the thing that that tipped it over the edge. But actually, given what happened, could have been much worse. Perhaps it was just a little bit too late, and it was only luck that means we're not talking about a much more horrific outcome right now. So just that alone. Sorry, Ed, excuse me. And uh, you mean, and obviously consummate skill. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. I just, yeah, we need it. I, I, impl- I implied this, but I think any other driver in the history of, of Formula One would, would not have got out of that. But so, yeah. So, so <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a great skill in accident avoidance. It's a very, very, uh, very important one. But yeah, it, it's the extreme measures you had to take shows how extreme that situation is so even if you set aside all the other stuff and accusations of invoice forging and financial shenanigans going on the background that safety thing is just not acceptable and you know that really would never be acceptable in motorsport but as professionalism increased and moving more into the modern world it's it's doubly unacceptable so yeah probably by definition it was it was one weekend too late but it certainly wasn't too soon that's for sure so spa was our final race but you know andrea and the team actually turned up at imola now here's the funny thing is that they hadn't told me they were going to imola I had a sneaking feeling that they might be. So I packed my kit. This is this is a driver trying to track his own team down. <laughs> so so I got there. And of course, we had no passes, you know. So I got to the I managed to get a, a, a program and I got to the paddock gate for Formula One. And they said, Where's your pass? Where's your pass? And I said, no pass, no pass. And they said can't come in, basically. So then I got a program and I've opened it up and I've shown the security guard. Look, you see, there's a picture of me, Perry McCarthy, Carl, 34 or 35, yeah. Um, that's me. Me want to go in there, you know. And in the end, he went, oh, you driver. I went, well, yeah, you'd like to think so. <laughs> and then he let me in. And then I saw Max, and Max, uh, we had a cup of coffee together, and he told me exactly what was going on. He said, there's no way I'm letting him in. So, you know, that was it. So, yeah, so, so he's still giving it a go. You know, Andrea, he was like... <laughs> There's part of his heart that was in the right place. He had the, you know, he had the balls to try and do this. But um, so it was a bit, I think Andrea is a bit of a romantic, to be quite honest. He, he just saw this opportunity and thought he could do it. He, he once said that he liked his crew looking so tired and worn out because that was the raw image he was trying to give Andrea Moda. And of course, Andrea and Moda means fashion. You know, that's his label. Uh, but he wanted this rag tag looking sad and tired look he thought it was brutal you know but it's brutal if you're driving for <laughs> it was in, it was incredible anyway i beg your pardon i just thought i'd add a bit on for you there yeah yeah i mean i i love that story about standing there with with the program uh, i think if there's if i'm maybe if i'm ever a lookalike of an f1 driver i can try that trick as well the, the interesting thing is that sassetti turned up with the trucks and he had at this point he had the Italian police with an order for him to be allowed into the paddock. The truck was let in, but there was a hearing that took place on the Friday afternoon, so the cars didn't run. Uh, the hearing took place in the local courtroom, and the team, shock of shocks, was ordered to comply with its ban and leave the F1 paddock. So Setti then went to the FIA International Court of Appeal to have the exclusion overturned, and again that was rejected. He spoke about this decision and why he kept fighting uh, years later. He said, we had the right to stay in F1. The moral is that they didn't want us anymore. When it was useful to have us make the right number of cars, they let us enter. Then they forced us out. 
They said I was in F1 to move illegal money. They said I brought drugs and some other things into the paddock. Everything was rubbish. We were not in FOCA, and all the crates with my equipment always had customs problems, and they were always controlled. In F1, there was money, but just for a few. They wanted the little teams to be dead. I spent my own money, and he said around the time it equated to about 3 million euros. I was investigated so much, they were searching for I don't know what. I had a clear conscience, and I still have. Do you know, I'll tell you something. It's like, and, and until you've started telling me all this and some of this I didn't even know, I mean, this gives Hans <laughs> Christian Anderson a bad name. Did you, obviously you got yourself to Monza, which answered one of the questions I had, but did you and Andrea speak at Monza or did or did he manage to no. avoid you? No, no, there's no point. No point. I was there looking to, I, I wanted to meet up with Nicky Lauda um, because I was, talking to Nikki about, look, can you get me on the Ferrari program or something like that, you know, anything. But but also you kind of have to remember that, you know, by the time by the time Damon and I got into Formula One, uh, we were both 31, you know, so I'm not looking, you know, I'm not looking like the most attractive opportunity the world has ever seen. 31, an absolute rubbish year in Grand Prix and, and with no sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll choose him. (laughs) You know, it's that, I mean, the the only reason why Damon was able to continue because he was driving a piece of junk, but not as much of a piece of junk as ours, because of course he had the Williams test contract, was doing a super job for them. Of course, Nigel fell out of bed with Williams at the end of 92, and he did it at quite a late stage. So many of the other first choices were contracted. And then they threw the dice on, uh, on Damon. And of course, you know, Damon locks onto that like an extra set, quite rightly too. And that was, um, you know, it was able to go from there. But so that was a that was a fairy tale for Jack, for Damon. But you know, the other set of circumstances over at my end, yeah, it, it just clearly well, it wasn't looking good, and it wasn't good. That's the thing. And just talking about test drives, actually, you said you obviously missed out on the Arrows drive. Um, I don't know if you know this. Uh, that was a year on from Arrows missing out on Michael Schumacher because they'd been in talks with him before Jordan and Benetton snapped him up. Yeah. So I think we could say that Arrows had good taste in uh, in drivers around this time, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, the great thing with Michael is that between me and Michael, we've currently won seven world championships. <laughs> now, Ed, uh, let's back in 1992, was there any truth to Sassetti's claims that F1 wanted the little team's to use his words, to be dead. Is there any way to view, as we reach the end of this story, is there any way to view this with even a slight amount of sympathy towards Andrea Moda? I think it's difficult, other than perhaps the slight sympathy of there was perhaps an authentic dream underpinning this, but an authentic dream doesn't get you very far. F1 did want a subset of the little teams to go, but it was those that weren't up to it. And much as I enjoy the stories of F1's terrible teams, it wasn't a great look, was it? And Andrea Moda really wasn't going to offer anything to to Formula One. And of course, there were the points that Prey made earlier about pre-qualifying was a bit of an inconvenience and a, and a slightly stupid thing to have happening. And and F1 has, has made sure that the, the grid has been under control in terms of size kind of ever since that period. That's where they started to control it because so many people came in. I think Sassetti gives himself a very, very generous uh, summary as if the problems were all external, but it was very clear that that he brought uh, a number of problems to it. So, yeah, I, I imagine that 
he came in with a dream and when it turns to a nightmare it's it's difficult perhaps to look at yourself uh, for, for the reasons for it so yeah it, it, made is a brilliant story but a horrendous story at the same time and not one that you'd really wish anyone to have to experience although in Perry's case it's uh, I guess you, you've <laughs> in a way you've ca- you've partly made a career of it which is just a brilliant way of turning a, a potential disaster into something isn't it it's it's quite funny I, I kind of you know, I do think about the career sometimes and um, I'm not really, as I think, you know, I'm not really a bitter person, um, but it was, you know, there were disappointments and I do think, I wonder what I could have done, you know, uh, if I'd been somewhere else. But conversely, maybe it would have been years just as a midfielder who nobody would have remembered anyway and not being able to do it. Who knows? Or maybe you would have been in something else, been out there a lot more and got wiped out because you're trying too hard or something. So you just never know. This was the this was the deck. Um, there's one thing I do know, and uh, I'm very proud that Damon always says it as well, is that I, I probably couldn't have tried harder, to be quite frank. Um, so any opportunity, any anything possible, and as I mentioned before, working on Oryx for two years to even get the money together to start racing. So, yeah, it wasn't for want of trying, but... I do feel that I feel I could have delivered. uh, And if I didn't, I certainly wouldn't have put my life into it. However, on the upside, I have some super adventures. I have had opportunities in the game because if people didn't believe in me, they would never have signed me for this, that or the other. There have been some wonderful moments. And it's been, I always say this, I, I just love my friendships. I've just met so many fantastic people and just had a great time. It's been a roller coaster. It really has. Yeah, and and, and I feel that we we've maybe taken you on a bit of a roller coaster here as well. And we're so grateful for the time that you've given us to tell this story in this level of depth. And obviously, the final word should go to you. So, just looking back at this point in '92, when it all finally fell apart, the Andrea Moda experience for you, how? Did you feel was 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 it was it relief that this crazy nightmare was over, or still some sadness that your first, what you hoped at the time was your first shot at F one hadn't turned into what you wanted it to? Uh, the brick wall would come down inside my head, and it was the next thing, um, and it was to use the fact that I had been visible in F one uh, to talk to the other teams. I think I mentioned this earlier. There were some other teams that seemed to really. I mean, Ken was one of them. You know, uh, I got close to joining Ken uh, in um, 89 um, because it was, I was driving for Ron Toronac. Um, I might be getting my years confused. I think it was, Ron was 88 and said to Ken behind my back, um, you've got to sign Perry, you know, and that was really, really nice to hear things like that. But Ken couldn't do it, but always kept an interest. And, you know, maybe there was a couple of times, maybe, maybe, maybe. And that's what you're staying for. And then, of course, at the end of 92, I tested for Benetton. And that was a good test. Went really well. Um, but it was I was only testing because Alex Nardi was ill. You know? So it was brilliant, brilliant to work with a top team. Very quickly, had had so much more confidence in this car because our car, as you noticed, was not just slow, but it was dangerous. The Benetton was so much faster, so much better, and so much safer and working with a professional team towards an end. And, you know, I had a great relationship with Pat Simmons and 
you know, Pat was there with me and we were, it, it was just great. Really, really great. So you're reaching for, is there any chance here? And then a couple of the F1 teams were saying, Perry, we're interested in you. Have you got any kind of money? And we're going down to like two or 300,000 quid, you know, which is peanuts. But I couldn't find it. So you like to, I rather hope that, I rather hope this is that clearly, of course, I was able to do nothing except hang on in Formula One. But I just would rather hope that people had some respect for, you know, what I was about and what I could actually do. And I think that did come through. And so so I kind of rest I rest easier on that, you know? Yeah, and hopefully we've we've put some meat on those bones for people. Um we have a lot of listeners, for example, who who didn't necessarily watch F1 during this era and they're learning about it and hearing these stories for the first time through us. They always ask us for book recommendations. So Flat Out, Flat Broke is on that list of recommendations now. It's an absolute must read. Um, you know, I don't think I'm I don't think this is a particularly outrageous opinion to tell tell you that Perry's a great storyteller. Um and don't believe him when he says that that, that story about Sassetti being arrested is made up. I'm sure it was true. Um, and actually, and Andrea in his interview was asked about your book. Uh, and he said every story uh, Perry told was the truth. And there were many stories that were worse as well. So if Andrea says it's true, let, let's go with it. The, the full stop yeah. on this story is that remarkably, Sassetti still refused to give up. And in December, he submitted an F1 entry for 1993. Uh, which we're all shocked to learn was rejected. So that is the end of Andrea Moda in F1 and probably not a moment too soon. I'm not sure what's harder to believe, uh, the fact that a team like that even existed or the fact that it once managed to qualify. Um, Thank you once again, Perry, so much uh, for your time and for all of your stories. We really appreciate you coming along. Uh, For our listeners, we're just a few episodes away now from our series finale where you can ask us your questions about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005 using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, email BringBackV10s at the-race.com or submit a question along with a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. Next time, we're jumping forward 21 years to venture into the V8 era of F1 where we'll revisit the 2013 Malaysian Grand Prix where things blew up yet again between Red Bull teammates Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber and the words multi-21 immediately went into F1 folklore.